Hey everyone, this is Cameron from Renegade Animation on RenegadePopCulture.com. If you like what we do, please give us a like and a rating and follow us on Apple Podcasts and, well, anywhere you listen to podcasts. We are everywhere. That way, we can keep doing what we love, and that's talk about animation. Alrighty, on with the show. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your captain for this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And today, we got a great show for you. We've got reviews for Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Fortune Favors Lady Nikuko, and the Bob's Burgers movie. But first, we've got a couple trailers to talk about. So Cameron, what do you got? Well, Paramount Plus has finally revealed the trailer for Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe. They go into space, they get caught in a black hole, and sent to the future of 2022. Such a faraway future. They made lightning in a bottle work once. The original movie was very popular. I think a lot of people were still surprised that Siskel and Ebert were very much down for the Beavis and Butthead Do America film. I'm sure they can make it strike twice. I am weary about how they're going to do it, but, you know, I'm optimistic. It looks very modern. The animation style definitely looks leaps and bounds better than the original. I didn't realize the movie was coming this soon. I figured we still had, like, at least, like, half a year left. I guess they're putting out the movie now as sort of testing the waters to see if this generation is truly down for a third iteration of the Beavis and Butthead series, which I'm honestly genuinely excited for. I remember when the show was like at the height of its popularity, it was practically inescapable, even if at the time I was probably too young to understand most of the humor. It's going to be interesting if they do bring them back again, because Beavis and Butthead was a very time-centric cartoon, because it was all about the MTV era, and well, <laughs> define the MTV era now, and it's like, you go back in time and tell people what MTV is going to be now, it would sound absurd. How do you adapt such a IP to modern day? But we'll have to see. They say this is going to be the dumbest sci-fi movie ever. I mean, there's a lot of competition, so it has to try hard in an intentionally amusing way. But I'm down. I'll definitely give it a watch. Paramount Plus is definitely like that one streaming service that I just do not catch up on. I unsubscribed from it a couple times, like after getting my deals to watch it, because there's just not a whole lot there animation wise that you either like the Star Trek stuff, which I've heard it's great, or you like the SpongeBob stuff, or you like whatever else they put on there and maybe support or not. It is unfortunately slim pickings on that service, but when when something is good, it's honestly really good. Yeah, yeah. Next up, we have the teaser trailer for the upcoming limited series that Netflix surprisingly didn't cancel. 
Oni, Thunder God's Tale, which is by the creators of the, the Dam Keeper, which was an Oscar-nominated short by Tonko House. It's done in this very cool CGI felt faux stop-motion look to everything. If you've been keeping up with the small bits of like art or animation tests for this show, it has such a wickedly charming look and appeal to it. And it just looks extremely stellar. This is some really good CGI animation to uh, try out and such. It just shows that we have yet to cross an area where CGI has stopped evolving. The first like 10 or 15 seconds that I watched this, I had to ask whether or not this was actual stop motion or CGI. That's how you can tell that the medium will keep evolving the more creatives put into pushing the envelope as hard as they have. And they also do the like those lower frame rates, which I know some people have an issue with it, but if this was done by like an overseas animation studio, everyone would be going crazy for it. It'd be like, oh, this looks so different. But when an American studio does it, and we'll talk a little bit about this with Chippendale, everyone is pretty much up in arms saying like, what the hell? This is America. We spend maybe way too much money on stuff. (laughs) Why can't we spend way too much money on everything here to boost the frame rate? Even though frame rates don't really matter in animation or not as much as like a video game and such. Also, the cast is pretty stacked. We have Momona Tamada, Archie Yates, Craig Robinson, Seth Carr, Brittany Ishibashi, Omar Miller, Miyushi Sawashiro, Yuki Matsuzaki, Robert Kondo, Anna Akana, Charlotte Takahashi Chung, Tantu Cardinal, and George Sakei. That is a pretty stellar cast. Yeah, and it just looks stellar. I can't wait for everyone to see this because I've been keeping an eye out for this for a while. I love Tonko House. Is there a release date? They didn't have one on this trailer, but I'm assuming it's going to be somewhere in the summer or fall. It's probably going to be like July, August, September time period. That's the best assumption I can make, but it's just an assumption. Or, you know, I guess. We'll probably find out more next week. This is the week of Netflix uh, Geeked. And then finally, we got a small little sneak peek of the new animated series coming to Disney. Hamster and Gretel by the same people who made Milo Murphy's Law and the very popular Phineas and Ferb. It's a very good first impression. Very cute. It has the same distinct art style that the team brings. And a very distinct humor to it, where it's very self-aware about what kind of show it is. Down to the fact that when, you know, the whole plot is a brother and sister sibling get encounter aliens literally out of nowhere. They just show up <laughs> and are given superpowers. But the twist is Gretel is the one that gets the superpowers along with her hamster while the brother is left high and dry, which there's a very passive aggressive, like cynicism to it Uh (laughs) of just how the joke lands at the end. By the way, the brother Jerry is voiced by Noah Schnapp, who, if you're a Stranger Things fan, that's Will. So learning that 
it kind of makes what happens to him even funnier in a very darkly comedic fashion. Well, it's just, I love the passive aggressiveness. It was like, oh, when they said the two of us, they were talking about me and Hamster and they were completely ignoring you. It's like, <laughs> wow, buddy. <laughs> I'm very excited for this. This was a fantastic first impression. I do hope people actually support this because they sure as heck didn't support Milo Murphy's law. And I mean, part of that could also be on Disney themselves. It's It takes two to tango kind of situation. But it did seem like everyone bailed on Milo Murphy's law because it wasn't Phineas and Ferb. That's a terrible mindset to me. Imagine if, imagine if like everyone bailed on American Dad just because it wasn't Family Guy or... Imagine everyone bailing on Samurai Jack because it's not Dexter's Laboratory. People bailing on Futurama because it's not The Simpsons. Guys, please support this one. And something that myself and another friend of mine have observed is like a whole mess of people shitting on this, like the sneak peek, because while I may sympathize, there's a lot of people upset about the apparent new direction that the Disney Channel is heading in, that there, we're no longer seeing serialized programming like Amphibia or The Owl House. And they're pretty much taking their frustration out on this show, which I don't really understand because this doesn't look all that different from Phineas and Ferb, which to my understanding is a show that kind of breathed new life into Disney TVA. It really kind of feels weird that like a large section of like the cartoon community is turning on Dan Povenmire. Which it's like, don't do that. We're in a very tumultuous time right now with animation and just like with Netflix getting trigger happy with canceling animated films and shows left and right. RIP Jorge Gutierrez's recent announcement that they canceled a film that was in early in production. Granted, Jorge still keeps the rights to the film, but still. Yes, there are some silver linings like WB going back and saying like, hey, we're not just going to focus on pre-K and children audiences. We're going to make sure to focus on adults and teenage audiences as well. But still, it's like right now more than ever, you have to be supportive of these shows and the people that make them or else you're not really an animation fan. Yeah. Don't just like the end product, like everything about it, unless, you know, the occasional exception happens. We can't expect you guys to like everything, but if this sneak preview didn't work for you, fine. I get it. But at least give the show its day in court before you write it off. That's all that we have for now. I think it's time to talk about one of the most hotly debated movies of the year question mark or at least it brought up some very interesting topics worth discussing when you wouldn't think it would have yeah so we begin with chippendale rescue rangers this is a film that i guess is a kind of sort of continuation of the disney afternoon series Directed by Akiva Schaefer from The Lonely Island and written by Dan Greger and Doug Mann, the film is set decades since their successful television series was canceled, where Chip has 
succumbed to a life of suburban domesticity as an insurance salesman, while Dale, meanwhile, has had CGI surgery, that still makes me laugh, and works the nostalgia convention circuit, desperate to relive his glory days. When a former castmate mysteriously disappears, Chip and Dale must repair their broken friendship and take on their rescue rangers detective personas once again to save their friend's life. A, I still can't believe this movie exists, just in general, and B, I honestly think we should have gotten this in theaters, because imagine how much money this would have made in a month that wasn't too crowded. I was just going to say, because so many film critics are in our generation, this would have made a pretty penny if they put it out in theaters. I mean, it's interesting, because everyone very much loves, like, the Disney afternoon, to a degree. I think when you get to some of the newer generation, they'll be like, huh, so this is what you watched. (laughs) And it's interesting because DuckTales had a very successful reboot, but I'm wondering how loved like Chippendale was. So it was, well, as the director said, this was considered an experiment because, well, I think it was to test the waters to see if people really wanted to see more Chippendale or wanted more of this Disney afternoon love, despite the whole uh, DuckTales being pretty acclaimed and what have you. And the upcoming Darkwing Duck reboots. Which we still haven't really heard much about. Even the movie at the end, it's just like, Darkwing Duck, Darkwing Duck. <laughs> I very much enjoyed this movie. I think like with the exception of the Pixar movies that got forced onto Disney plus, this is the best Disney plus movie that they've made. Despite a few little clunky elements, which we'll get to it's wildly creative. It's like, this is what happens when you don't backseat drive on a IP focused property. And you let the people who are making the said film or show or whatever just go hog wild one thing i will say before we get really into the thick of things i know some people get a little bit annoyed when people say like oh it's just like who framed roger rabbit i understand nothing is ever going to top roger rabbit in terms of quality writing commentary and all that stuff but what else is there to compare it to what were you expecting people to compare this to especially since it's a Disney-related film and what have you. It's where people expecting, I don't know, Cool World, you know, that disaster. (laughs) To people's credit, this movie actually feels the closest in tone to Who Famed Roger Rabbit in that they're both clearly influenced by film noir. So at least this time, the comparison's have a little more merit to it but in terms of what they got away with in this movie this almost kind of reminds me of the lego movie just in terms of its kind of manic energy and the fact that they have like so many different crossovers that i don't think anyone was expecting they didn't just make who framed roger rabbit light they took it in their own respective direction which is mostly about the pros and cons the highs and lows, the beauty and the ugly side 
to entertainment. Speaking of ugly, I was not prepared for how much we would get ugly Sonic in this movie. I thought he would <laughs> only be in like like that one scene at the convention center, but he shows up like two more times and it's, all three of his scenes are like one of the biggest highlights. Well, on one hand, it is extremely humorous to see him on the nostalgia circuit. Two, Tim Robinson is the best casting choice for this kind of character. Oh, absolutely. I don't think any other movie this year is going to get as good of casting as Tim Robinson as Ugly Sonic. Three, it fits into the whole world. It doesn't feel like an extremely mean jab. It's honestly a little sympathetic towards what happened because, you know, it's not the CGI and VFX artist's fault that they were told, hey, this is what Sonic's going to look like before... The internet said, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and then, as Ugly Sonic says, burn the internet to the ground. I think it's very interesting about where they took this, because while it definitely has, like, the spirit of a Who Framed Roger Rabbit-style film, or, like, something like the Lego movie, it still feels like something that the Rescue Rangers would do. Uh-huh. Like, I know a lot of people wanted more of the Rescue Rangers all together and such, but it still feels like that property in spirit. I don't think they changed all that much. It's still Chip and Dale saving people, including their friends, from very shady individuals. It's been a while since I've seen, like, the actual show, but... The fact that they went like the extra mile to to actually reference very specific episodes shows that the creative team weren't just taking this on as as like a paycheck gig. They're like legitimate fans of the series. It's very interesting to see what they exactly crossed over with, because on one hand, they are very picky about what they choose to like get the rights to and such. Like there's some DC properties. I think the He-Man ones was very humorous in terms of just that small little cameo. And they actually got the original Skeletor to voice, well, Skeletor again and He-Man for that one small moment. Seeing um, Tigra. And then they do little things like, oh, they make one of those uh, stop motions bed mattress sheep i have to say i think the uh, the remake and reboot posters that chip would see while walking back to his place oh those were hilarious like the mrs doubtfire remake with meryl <laughs> streep mr and, doubtfire yeah mr doubtfire and, and of course everyone's pointed this out but the batman versus et one my oh. favorite was a uh, lego miserable I would love to see a Lego Les Miserables. <laughs> then they go the extra mile because when Roger Rabbit came out, it was pretty much 2D animation and that's it. But then they go the mile of adding all these different varied, mostly CGI, but CGI imitating different art styles and what have you. I know a lot of people got hung up on most of the characters having a cel-shaded look to the CGI with the lower frame rate and what have you. But considering all the production troubles this film went through, I'm happy that it doesn't look worse. Same. This is something that you would normally see in like a lot of overseas productions. 
it's all about resource management. I know that sounds like a more of a video game thing, but when you uh, read up on a production of certain films like uh, Zombillennium, they were like, okay, we can make the CGI expressive, but we're going to have to get rid of lighting and shadows for the most part. And granted, it shows, but it does have the end result of the film having a very distinct cartoony comic book CGI look. And also, you know, we've been doing lower frame rates like for the past few years now. I think it's here to stay. So it's a feature. It's not a bug. People just need to accept that. Yeah, they need to learn or read up or watch more varied animation experiences. But they do pull off a good job with trying to match like the 2D animation with the CGI or especially with Detective Putty, who's voiced by J.K. Simmons, catching that Gumby stop motion feel. By the way, Detective Putty has probably some of my favorite animation bits and pieces. Same. Also, probably one of the most graphic deaths to any corrupt cop villain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was not expecting them to go that hard, but then again, it's a Lonely Island guy, so they went there. But I think my favorite animation gags are when they go to the Uncanny Valley. <laughs> they basically have a whole side of the city and one like generic character just to bash the Robert Zemeckis motion capture films. I was going to say, considering the fact that it was Zemeckis who directed Who Framed Roger Rabbit, this seems especially ironic. It's funny because Zemeckis, for a few years was extremely hell-bent on making the motion capture stuff a modern part of filmmaking. And And audiences rejected it. They did. I mean, there were a few films that were pretty decent, like Beowulf and Monster House. But then when Mars Needs Moms came out, everyone was like, no. But everything with Bob the the Warrior Viking, who's voiced by Seth Rogen, all of those jokes are great. And even Seth Rogen gets kind of a self-deprecating joke near the end which has unfortunately been spoiled by some of the ads for the film where bob is like what are you looking at and then you see seth rogan's incarnation of pumbaa staring down at him and saying like i'm just looking at your creepy dead eyes and then you see seth rogan's character from kung fu panda and then monsters versus aliens and seth rogan was willing to basically make fun of his very iconic laugh yep like and i'm sure zemeckis got a kind of a kick out of the whole like bob the warrior viking being like i am looking at you and then they're like no it looks like you're looking at a window and he's like nope i'm looking straight at you and he's pointing down at them while his face is just stationary forward (laughs) it's all very creative of how they handle all the different animation styles and of course it's very fun to see the puppets i do love the bjornson the cheesemonger and that tone of just like, he's basically, he's obviously a parody of the Swedish chef. Obviously. And I'm sure the Muppets were like, listen, we're all about the meta stuff, but you are not making us a pseudo drug dealer character <laughs> with the Swedish chef. And I love that scene where he's just like, I got the cheese. And they're like, yeah, but you have smelly cheese. The sudden tone shift of his eyebrows going down. He's like, you cops. <laughs> uh, Keegan-Michael Key does a really good job of that. The, the whole cast is 
pretty stellar. Oh, yeah. I mean, granted, one of the actors kind of loses a few points due to his recent actions. You know, with John Mulaney as Chip, even though I think he does a great job as Chip, some of his recent things have been kind of like, ah, it's kind of a bummer. (laughs) Yeah. But Dale, voiced by Andy Samberg, I think does a great job. This was perfect casting for his wild and crazy personality. It fits. I mean, Dale was basically Andy Samberg's character from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but decades beforehand. I know some people would have rather they brought back Tress McNeil and Corey Burton to voice the two, but I'm going to be honest. I don't think people would have tolerated their high-pitched voice for 90 minutes. Yeah, to be fair, they do show up in like a quick cameo as like the acting choice for these two characters. Oh, no, yeah. And Tress McNeil does come back as Gadget. I mean, come on, it's Tress McNeil. You got to bring her back, at least for gadgets. Though I think Dennis Haysbert as Zipper is a delightful little gag because Zipper's whole thing, which the film kind of makes a meta joke about saying like, he's tiny and nobody can understand him, a double threat. And it's like, isn't that what Chip and Dale are? They're tiny and nobody can understand him. And then we also have like Eric Bana who voices Monterey Jack. Kind of interesting that they didn't bring back Jim Cummings for this one scene but and it's weird because jim cummings does actually appear throughout the whole thing i think what i like about this normally i would prefer a professional voice actor to you know like to play these characters but to eric bonner's credit he is an actual australian voicing an australian character that's true and then we also have like devon mcdonald as jimmy the polar bear which was obviously meant to be the coca-cola bear flula borg he's showing up everywhere as the snake DJ. And then we also have like Chun, Tad Stones, Liz Kukowski. Uh Rachel Bloom shows up multiple times. And Liz Kukowski also does like a lot of, a lot of voices in the background. Uh, Lumiere is voiced by Jeff Bennett, who oh. does like a perfect impression. I'll be honest. Like I forgot that he's no longer with us. So I genuinely thought that that was Jerry Orbach. But no, Jeff Bennett did a, like a spot-on voice match. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Rachel Bloom also does like Flounder's voice. And uh, we got Akiva Schaefer, who appears all over the place. Uh, Paula Abdul as the 3D reporter, which is interesting because you can see her with... Opposites attract. Yeah, you can see them in the movie. So that makes sense that she appears once more. Because this is a Lonely Island production, Yorma Tacone voices DCEU version of Batman which is fun. And Akifa Schaefer appears all over the place. And that's when he's the colonel from, I think it was 101 Dalmatians. The officer sock puppet. That, I can't believe they got a sock puppet gag out of there. That's great. David Tennant appears for one small bit at Scrooge McDuck and the Money Pit. Fun fact, Akiva and Schaefer and Liz Kikowski are actually married. Oh. So seeing them as Eileen and Harold, the, uh, the two birds is very meta. <laughs> I actually didn't get the joke at the first time. Where I was like, what, what's with the birds? And then it's like, oh. But And then, of course, like, do you have any favorite little cameo appearances? I would have to go back and rewatch this again, but seeing all of the bootleg cartoons that they, like, rescue at the end, there's one shot of, like, I think it's either Phineas or Ferb, who kind of looks like the Dodo from Looney Tunes. That design just cracks me up when I see it. I, 
I know you can see a little bit of a Naruto kind of character also during that last sequence. Seeing all the bootleg characters was very interesting because when Disney got super big, like anytime there's a really big movie, there are so many mockbusters and bootleg versions of popular movies that come out all over the place. So it's like, it fits within that whole universe and just how like the nostalgia circuit and just how entertainment is extremely exhausting and brutal. I felt like they found an overall good commentary to go with in terms of the story and the detective work. I mean, like, what did you think about the story and what have you? I thought it was very fascinating, especially since there's kind of a debate going around now about copyright laws and like the fact that Disney has been profiting for like decades on other people's works while they're also the biggest lobbyers for extending copyright. We could debate for hours about what huge hypocrites Disney can be when it comes to all of that. But the fact that that's kind of a big plot point in this movie is just so fascinating. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And it felt very cohesive. It didn't feel like they were like trying to give us a version of like a film that we already had. It's just a different take on it. I definitely like the pacing and I like the humor. The humor gets pretty dark at points and very uh, suggestive. Now I'm talking about this, like all these elements, all these different little moments. It's still kind of wild to see, first of all, Blaster from Transformers in the audience at one point, seeing the, the mom from Phineas and Ferb on Main Street, aka like the, the worst place ever, <laughs> which... That whole sequence was great. You see the two donut cops from Wreck-It Ralph. Then, of course, the My Little Pony, the main six from the uh, the 2010 show. And then just Randy Marsh from South Park. He's just there. That is so funny to me. And, well, I guess we can't really avoid talking about it any further. So I'll leave this off. What were you expecting what they would do with Gadget hooking up a zipper? Um, the internet exists. <laughs> That's... So many animation studios are tell people coming in saying like, okay. And they put down like rule 34 work of all the characters that they own saying like, this is going to happen. Be ready. (laughs) You don't think someone has ever actually not thought about the creepy monstrosity kids that Gadget and Zipper would have. Someone has thought about it. Someone has thought about it. And the creative team here, they are the only ones brave enough to actually put it on screen. So much of this film's humor is really fun on. Now, it definitely has like that Lord and Miller vibe at points where it's like it's being meta about certain things. But, you know, I guess I should actually talk about the real controversy that's revolving around this movie. Let's talk about the villain. Sweet Pete, a.k.a. an adult Peter Pan, voiced by Will Arnett. Just in case some people don't know, the original plan was to make an adult Charlie Brown, but they couldn't really get the rights to him. So they, of course, being a Disney film, went with the one that they could have and use. Yeah, some people have brought up the extremely sad and dark history of the actor who played Peter Pan in the original Disney animated feature and people are split to put it lightly. Some see it as tasteless. 
and making fun of a really tragic history for the character. On the other hand, I give the filmmakers kudos for being a film that's all about the downsides and the dark histories of pop culture and entertainment by highlighting one of the saddest stories to ever come out of the entertainment industry. And Disney just said, sure. (laughs) Where do you stand on this? Now that I've actually seen the movie, I have to give respect to Schaefer and the writers for honestly just like committing to this character. While Schaefer may claim that they were not trying to make fun of any specific actor. People who know their Disney history, they will just naturally assume bad faith because this was such a like a tragic passing for Bobby Driscoll. I'm not going to tell people how to feel. Personally, personally, I think the more I think about it, the more effective he is as a villain. I may not have completely loved it the first time, but because this movie is all about the ups and downs of show business, it leaves like a very lasting impression. And I know someone could have said they could have just made a new character for it. You know, again, animation resources, this film and the director even basically said the quiet part out loud. Disney kind of cut their funding and it did not give them enough time or money to go as far as they wanted to. So I'm giving them a little more leeway about how they handled all of this. It fits because that's what happens to a lot of child actors in entertainment, especially at Disney and Nickelodeon. They are cute, adorable, until they hit like 16, and then they're tossed out. And... Some of them are able to bounce back like Neil Patrick Harris. Or Ethan Hawke. And unfortunately, not everyone is are those cases. More times than not, because of how terrible the entertainment industry is, and just all the stories that you hear about it, especially the stuff with the Nickelodeon and Disney live-action sitcoms, I think it was a good idea to choose a villain like this and this kind of character for the movie. And you at least understand his ambitions and goals. Like he made a bootleg rip off of Peter Pan and it made him a lot of money. So he's in his own way, helping these people stay relevant. And he gets to choose who gets on screen and who doesn't. And also he's just a really funny character. Like Will Arnett does the comedic villain angle very well. I love that moment after the raid in the lab where he's just like, no, I got my own way of tracking people. He just pulls up a phone and follows Dale on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was very clever, but that's just me. If you feel, I mean, I think the thing that's always going to be weird with how big Disney is right now, it's always going to feel maybe slightly disingenuous when a movie comes out from them talking about how corporations and the entertainment industry is terrible when it's from Disney. Mm. Like, I think everyone was kind of like weirded out by like, so was the 2019 Dumbo remake made before or after the Fox merger. It's that kind of situation. So I understand that people are not on board with the Sweet Pete 
situation. I get it. It's a miracle this film got made at all. And that was as entertaining and as creative as it was. Yes. Would I have loved them to get a little more time and money to make the 2D characters composite better with the live action world? Yes, of course. I think that was my one constant nitpick of like the 2D characters would look like they were on a green screen compared to everything else. And there's always going to be those like little moments where, oh, they weren't able to hide the fact that the cartoon character was actually not there. You can actually spot those in Who Framed Roger Rabbit if you're careful enough. Like there's a scene where Roger Rabbit is grabbing the main character's coat and the coat just automatically goes to Roger's hands. I'm just saying this isn't the first time these animation live action hybrids have had issues like that. And just to get an idea of how not complete they had of a budget on Wikipedia, they, they say the reported budget is like 70 million, but then it turns out the actual number is like 20 million less. It's really only like 50.6, which knowing that and that it still looks as good as it does is honestly pretty impressive. I know some people are like, well, why didn't Dale stay like faux 2D like chip? But it's, you know, again, resource management and also it makes sense like there's a whole industry of conventions that are all about nostalgia and characters like played by character actors or bit parts played by actors that you don't hear from again who people love and they will show up to see them yep i'm just saying it makes sense or seeing like all the posters behind Ugly Sonic. And the fact that Ugly Sonic essentially got a Steven Seagal style cop show <laughs> at the end. I, I don't think I can get over how well implemented Ugly Sonic is in this movie. He is the MVP of the internet. Yeah, I don't really have much else to say. I wish this got a theatrical release, maybe had a little more time to develop everything. But of course, COVID and Disney pulling some of its funding away. I'm happy for what we got. I would love to like read up more about this on my own time, like the production and if this thing has any behind the scenes features. If you're looking for a an actual Disney Plus original film, that's great. That wasn't just Pixar films getting shoved onto Disney Plus. I'd give this one a watch. This is one of those movies where if you rewatch this like a couple dozen times, you'll continue to pick up new background details or Easter eggs with all the bootlegs. Matilda (laughs) Reloaded. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely give us one a watch. I had a lot of fun. It's definitely one of those films that also really works on a streaming service because then you can just rewind and pause every time just to spot all the different jokes. So what are we talking about next, Mike? Next, we'll be talking about a film that technically was released last year in Japan. But G-Kids finally brought this one over the States. Fortune Favors Lady Mikiko, directed by Ayumu Watanabe from a screenplay written by Satomi Ushima and based on the novel of the same name by Kanako Nishi. This film follows Mikiko, a brash, jolly, scattered, and passionate woman in an otherwise sleepy seaside town in northern Japan. She's also the single mother of 11-year-old Kikuko, who is her opposite in many ways. Kikuko is a string bean of a young girl, pensive, quietly curious, 
and methodical in how she approaches life in this small harbor town. Nikiko embarrasses Kuko as any mom of a preteen would, but Nikiko's bold spirit makes her especially well-known in a town where Kikiko herself wants nothing more than to simply blend in. As Kikiko navigates the everyday social dramas of middle school, enhanced with touches of magical realism from her ever-present imagination, a shocking revelation from the past threatens to uproot the pair's tender relationship. God, this movie's amazing. Yeah, so if the director sounds familiar, that's because Ayumu Watanabe has been a director for many films and TV shows. Like, he was the director for Comey Can't Communicate and the current director of Summertime Rendering. Disney Plus, you gotta tell us if you're gonna release that thing or not. (laughs) Please, pretty please. Yeah, or uh, one of my favorite anime from... 2018 after the rain and of course a film that i very much enjoyed from 2019 children of the sea now to be fair fortune favors lady Nyukuko did get a u.s release in animation as film last year essentially like g kids picked up the rights for it and then submitted it to the oscars for 2021 which unfortunately it did not get nominated it got nominated at the annies that's like i consider it a 2021 film but that's mostly because i was able to see it in 2021 and it's also just splitting hairs because it takes forever for these films to finally get a u.s release and it's usually like months after and even then in the case of this movie it really only got like a limited uh fathom event screening which i saw <laughs> I was able to see it in theaters. It was Thursday. They were also played the short of Daisy Meets the Girl at the end of it. And it had a nice little message from the director and producer, which the, it was funny. The director said, you'll see a cameo at, in the post credit scene, but I'll get to that when we get to a certain moment of talking about this film. Fortune Favors Lady Nikuko has actually been a very well acclaimed movie. It's been racking up awards left and right when it was going through the festival circuit, mostly in the Far East area of the world. But but I know there were some reviews that kind of detracted the fact that this film wasn't as visually ambitious as Children of the Sea, which, I mean, you look at Children of the Sea and it's like, wow. <laughs> I understand to some extent that it is kind of hard to top what that movie accomplished, but then I look at scenes like the opening to this movie and and the flashback scene towards the end, and I'm like, you can definitely tell this is a uh, a Watanabe joint. Yeah, it's a smaller scale film, and there seems to always be this kind of, I guess, pushback in some ways of like oh the director made something super ambitious but then they go on to make something not or at smaller in scale and that's bad for some reason i don't agree with that mindset i think if they want to make a smaller film then let them make a smaller film it's the whole pixar argument again people were mad that luca wasn't sold and yet people have fallen in love head over heels for turning red. So it's pretty much like chill. (laughs) Basically. Let the directors make the films they want to make. It's still a visually gorgeous movie. 
and it helps that they got the same character designer as Kenichi Konishi, who also did work on like Tokyo Godfathers and worked on a lot of Ghibli films as well, like The Tale of Princess Kaguya. If you know his work, if you've seen like Tokyo Godfather and such, his designs are very expressive. Like they still have that polish that you would see from his work on Children of the Sea, but they were able to go more cartoonish and you really needed that with a character like Mikuko, who unfortunately gets a few fat jokes at the beginning, but does not fall into the pit trap of the fat character supporting the skinny character. Or at least that's how I felt about it, where like that's an easy trap for like to fall into with writing like the fat friend character being like the one who helps raise the esteem of the skinny character but it's not that kind of story it's a coming of age story and it's all about Mikuko and her relationship with her daughter and then the daughter's bonding with different people in the village or uh, just her relationship with like the other students other and this one mysterious boy the boy who as they call it Pole's faces. Uh, Nino Mia, who's voiced by Natsuki Hane, who was, I think he's the guy who's the main character in Demon Slayer. Tanjiro. And he's also the main character in Love All Play. He's one of the main characters in Fanfare of Adolescence. Ooh, nice. Oh, <laughs> he's also our favorite walrus taxi driver. Uh, of course. Otokawa from Odd Taxi. And he's also in like a ton of other things. So he's Jocko in Dragon Ball Super. Yeah. Oh my God. He's everywhere. Yeah. He's also a Bochan in, oh, the Duke of Death and his maid. And he's also in the upcoming movie Goodbye Don Gleese as one of the main characters as well. So nice. we'll hear him there. It's got a very good cast of characters here. Like I think Kikoko is a very likable young teenager. Nikoko, which we just praise as like the most energetic and optimistic character. She honestly reminds me of a lot my aunts, particularly on my mom's side of the family. She definitely has that like bubbly, larger than life personality that it's fun to see those kind of characters in these types of stories. Sesson, the owner of the grill slash bar, I thought he was really good. I liked Maria, the best friend to uh, Kikuko. I mean, it's a very small-scale cast. Like, there are definitely more characters than who we're talking about. Like, we have Matsuko Deluxe, who was uh, Dorisia, the fortune teller on TV. And fun fact, the did you see the post credit scene where they're watching another segment of Dorisia's show? Unfortunately, I didn't. Oh, that's a shame. Mikuko is watching another segment from Dorisia's show and the person she's talking to is the producer of the movie in a cameo. That's clever. That whole opening bit of the producer talking about the film and such was very humorous. He was saying like, this is the first time I've ever produced a movie. I am never doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> Ayumu was like, please stay for the rest of the movie. There's a scene at the end that I think y'all would love. And the producer is like, well, yeah, y'all better stay at the end because, you know, I usually get up when the credits start. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very back and forward, like playful dynamic between the two. I'm bummed about that because it's very funny because it, during that segment with Dorisia, Nikuko is just like, man, that guy talks too much and then turned off the TV. <laughs> this movie has a very charming sense of humor. Like it's not just Nikuko and her 
unlimited amounts of expressive animation. Like there are some little weird moments, like like with the talking animals and such. Mm-hmm. And that- I it took me like the second time watching this to get that it was like Kikuko and maybe Nino Mia were making all the voices, all the animals talking. It is a subtle detail that you miss un- until they actually address it later on. Though I have to say my favorite animal has to be the penguin. Yes! Who kept saying death to you all. In the most adorable voice, too. Yeah, very baby voice. Like, death to you all! I knew from the second, like, he came up that, like, oh, this is gonna be the best character. I loved the little cicada gag at um, where he was just like, I stay underground for 17 years only to come up after after such and die (laughs) but they do fit within the whole like kikuko feeling lonely so she makes all these voices and ninomiya feeling lonely and so they make all these voices for all the animals there just to kind of pass the time and of course there's a totoro reference which is probably one of the more well-known scenes of this movie if you've seen the trailers and clips i get it (laughs) naturally and uh, Mike, what is one detail about this movie that you warned people in your quick thoughts? Do not watch this on an empty stomach. No. <laughs> I don't know what it is about anime films, especially, but like they love their food porn, especially if you're like a big carnivore. Yeah, seeing that steak, or that special steak that the owner would give to everyone else was so delicious looking. Yeah, they put a lot of detail in their food. In Japanese animated films, and just films in general, you know, if turning red wasn't an indication of said thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, Glass Reflection, a YouTube channel that talks about anime, talked about this. I think it's because there was this one anime way back in the day that basically, you know, of course, the anime industry being what it is, essentially didn't have time to make a cabbage look good. So it just looked like a big green kickball and everyone was just like what the heck is up with the cabbage so then there was like a rule of like okay we can no longer do that anymore we can't cut corners like that we gotta make the cabbage look good (laughs) so one anime flub has resulted in a massive overcorrection basically i mean granted there was always good looking anime food in general it's just this was the one that said like no keep it looking good (laughs) back to the movie it's like a slice of life thing if you watched anime films like my neighbor totoro or my my miracle that's the kind of tone and vibe it's very small little story beats that connect with one another that don't have too much of a connective tissue between them until the last third i think the last third is when this movie really leaps from really good to amazing granted it does have that kind of like that's always going to be the thing with these kind of slice of life movies it's going to be very sudden when they go to the third act conflict but it makes sense like it just the thing that you need to do is basically can we make it as seamless as possible and not make it so sudden if that makes sense yeah but i do think it fits because then we get to learn more about Nikuko's past like we're told a little bit about it but the third act is where it really sets in about the history between Nikuko and this 
mysterious woman that you see in a lot of the advertising, but are never told who she is until you actually watch the movie. And um, I guess we'll spoiler warnings here. It comes to a head that Nikuko and Kikuko are not related. Essentially what happened was Nikuko lived with a woman named Miu and Miu one day got pregnant. And while Miu was dealing with having a baby, Nikuko paid for them and such. And one day Miu just vanishes and leaves Kikuko with Nikuko. By the way, this film, I don't know if it's ever going to get a dub because there are some very specific bits of dialogue here that would have would take a lot of time to adapt for an English audience. Kind of like how I felt about your boy Kung Ming. This is one of those rare anime where I'm worried that if this does get an English dub that certain jokes would get lost in translation. Well, especially all the dialogue and word puns that the film makes a very clear indication of is a major part of Nikuko's character mm-hmm. is that she loves word and dialogue jokes. And math puns too. Yeah, so I'm not sure if there is a really good way, or you have to be very careful with how you dub it. It's not like how you could easily make a dub for Pompo the Cinephile. That takes no trouble. This, it just brings me back to those days where early on anime dubs had no idea how to translate certain jokes. So you just get these really weird, awkward moments and it's just like, oh, there's something in like lost in translation. But anyway, I just realized by saying that because it's like Nikuko and Kikuko are wordplay. And Kikuko ends up in the hospital for what was it like appendicitis? Yeah. That's when she tells Nikuko that she knows about what happened. And then you the mystery of who is Nikuko is talking to. And it starts to build up all these little mysteries that are shown throughout the film. And this film's not even that long. It's like 96 minutes. It turns out that like Miu, like off screen, was actually there at multiple points in the story. And Nikuko was either taking rice balls to her or talking with her over the phone. It definitely doesn't paint Miu as a good person because she abandoned the kid. And then it's like, oh, she's back in the picture and she got married and is pregnant again. But she still loves you, Kikuko. And it's like, "Ah." are you sure about that? Yeah. I'm pressing X to doubt, but it does end with a very touching, like, Kikuko is just like, Nikuko, you can be obnoxious, you're not perfect at all, but you are my mom, and I love you. And then, of course, the very last scene happens, and they leave it up to interpretation, because, it like, years pass when that scene happens, and that's what I like. It doesn't fully explain every little detail, but it doesn't have to. No, not every film, like, again, we live in this world of the internet where some of the biggest articles online are just articles talking about all these little details that you may have missed about a movie and what it means. And it's just like, just let the audience decide. Maybe. I don't know. You don't need to take the magic out of storytelling. That's all I'm saying. Exactly. Like it's not meant to run on real world logic. It's emotional logic. And that's why this film works. Because it sticks to that. It's very committed. Yeah, I just love this movie. It's in my top 10 from last year. So Since I'm including it as a 2022 release, it's in my top 10 for this year. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. The very limited release 
means that you probably at this point as of recording have missed it, which sucks because they'll roll out the red carpet for Bell, which I love that movie, but they won't do the same for their other releases. Granted, sometimes that's a good thing, but it is a little bit of a bummer. So we'll just have to see what they do with these next upcoming films. Like G-Kids is going to release The Deer King and Goodbye Don Glees. And in August, Inuo finally gets a U.S. release. And I'm going to assume that will be their big award contender. I hope so, because Misaki Yuasa deserves to go out on a high note. You might have to, unfortunately, wait to see Fortune Favors Lady Mikuko when it shows up on demand and digital blu-ray and dvd and what have you until then like definitely put it on your watch list you should definitely keep an eye on this one because it is a feast for the eyes yeah just the way it was able to balance out its super lush background with the cartoonier animation ah just perfect that's why you go to studio 4c for but now it's time to talk about our last film and one that Granted, I have joked about saying I don't think it exists until it actually came out. But let's talk about the Bob's Burgers movie. Yes, the Bob's Burgers movie, directed by Lauren Bouchard and Bernard Derriman, written by Bouchard and Nora Smith. So for this movie, a ruptured water main creates an enormous sinkhole right in front of Bob's Burgers blocking the entrance indefinitely and ruining the Belcher's plans for a successful summer. While Bob and Linda struggle to keep the business afloat, the kids try to solve a mystery that could save their family's restaurant. As the dangers mount, these underdogs help each other find hope as they try to get back behind the counter. Full disclosure, I am a filthy casual and have only really watched a very small sample size of episodes just to prime myself for this movie. Really, in hindsight, I feel silly for not keeping up with the show for all of its 12 seasons because this is just so delightful. Yeah, this movie was a surprise. I was kind of worried about what the end product would be because to me, I've watched a lot of Bob's Burgers. Not as much as all 12 seasons but a good chunk of like multiple seasons and it always felt like that one kind of show that you could never quite turn into a a movie just the flow of the comedy and such they usually work better as a 30 minute show but bob's burgers was able to actually adapt pretty well to the theatrical formats i mean let's get this out of the way first The animation does look great. Mm -hmm. It's not like the super amazing 2D animation that you would get like from a Disney film. It's basically an upgraded and fancier version of the TV show. Or, you know, that joke that goes around with the uh, picture of Peter Griffin from Family Guy, where it's like TV show, movie, and they add some shading and lighting to it. And it looks like, you know, pretty simple in all things considered but and you know also a lot of these kind of films fall into the same pit traps as others where it just feels like an elongated episode or like a three-parter or what have you and for the most part i think this film was able to 
get out of that trap. I'd agree with that. This definitely feels, I won't disagree with people who say like that this is basically a 90 minute episode of the series. But where I disagree is with that being a bug and not a feature. I mean, I kind of get it. When you go to the movie theater, you want to see something that you can't get with like a TV show. And I think that's fair. Like, I think that's super understandable. Sometimes there's like, you watch some of these franchise films and they do not translate well from TV to film because the story feels too small scale or there's just not enough to the overall experience. But I think what makes Bob's Burgers work is that they keep it small scale. They don't have the characters traveling out of the city or anything like that. They keep it very much within a few literal blocks of the restaurant. I was watching an interview earlier with Lauren Bouchard and the way he described it is they did expand the world, but instead of expanding outward, they went deeper. And by that, I mean literally. Yeah. (laughs) While there have been talks about this movie being a musical, it's not a full-on musical, but there are what, like four songs? Yeah, like three, three to four. And I found the musical writing to be delightful. Just very good songs. I think my favorite one is, is the, uh, the Carney. Lucky Ducks. I think that was very much my favorite musical sequence. Had the best singers, had the best animation, and the best choreography. Which I saw someone kind of comment on this, that instead of being these big, grandiose musical like dance sequences, it's all very simple and weighted and kind of clunky because nobody there is like a Disney or Broadway or musical film actor and performer and such. Just very real characters who don't just know how to dance on a drop of a dime. And yet it works. Part of this franchise's charm. Yeah, I think the overall appeal of this movie and just the franchise in general, like this might be a franchise film, but it's got more of a mentality of like an indie production, if that makes sense. It's not super pop culture-y or very like, oh, we got to hit all the quadrants. It's relying more on the character dynamics and like who these individuals are for the comedy to work. Not to say that there aren't a few pop culture references or what have you, but it works because going at the beat of its own drum. That's what's so amazing that they were able to take that from the show and put it in the film. And it's seamless. I just think that's very impressive because, you know, like we said, it's not easy to just say, hey, make a 90 minute episode. You got to put a lot of weight into it and like what you want to do exactly. Yeah. Kind of like the Simpsons movie. You don't necessarily have to have kept up with every single episode to enjoy this on like a surface level. They do a pretty good job of like giving you ideas of like who these characters are, what their motivations are, and just kind of the environment that they live in. What was always so interesting about Bob's Burgers was the fact that, I mean, you know how sitcoms are. They set you in a world and they want you to believe that the characters you are watching are 
you know, blue collar, middle class. But there's always that thing of like, they really can't do that because it would just break the world building and momentum of the show. Like, it's like when you watch Friends and if you're from New York and you see the apartments that the Friends cast members have and it's like, there's no way that they could afford these. (laughs) If that apartment like was real today, it would cost an arm and a leg. That's the entire jab about like why people make fun of sitcoms is because it's like, oh, we're having money troubles and such. It's like, no, you're not. But Bob's Burgers, they make that pretty much one of the biggest driving forces of the Belcher family and a lot of people in the town in general is just like making enough money to survive and how the landlord is like a figurative and literal supervillain, even though he's performed wonderfully by Kevin Klein. I love this character because he is more or less like the designated antagonist of the show, but he's very nonchalant about everything. Oh yeah. Well, he's part of the 1%. He doesn't get why his actions are incredibly terrible to to everyone else. And yeah, that's like a lot of the, why he gets a lot of the big laughs is because he'll say something like pretty awful, but with the nonchalantness of just like, huh, they forgot a tomato on my sandwich. Oh, well. (laughs) And in terms of the comedy of the show, I was never laughing out loud, like where, like from my gut, but I was constantly smiling and chuckling. And then every once in a while, like I would laugh out loud at just like the, the situation or the characters or a bit of dialogue. This movie is so funny. This is one of the strongest comedy of the year so far. Easily. And that's all things considered where we have like turning red and the bad guys. But it might actually be the best comedy of the year so far, at the very least of the animation variety. They were able to shove so many jokes. Like this is one of those films where I wish I could have come back home and rewatched it on like Hulu or Disney Plus. Just so I could like re-listen to so many of the small little dialogue jokes that they throw in. Or like these little offbeat moments. Like I think my favorite joke that I laughed the loudest on was when the Belcher children are with Fish Odor and his uh, Felix, who's voiced by Zach Galifianakis. And they go all around under the pier in the boardwalk. And it's just like, here is the daycare slash bar. We had to shut it down. Yeah, the babies couldn't hold their liquor. <laughs> just like, geez. <laughs> And there are so many little jokes like that are like when Gene is just like, well, you know, I walked around with a bucket on my head for multiple years and y'all didn't say a thing about that. Well, yeah, no, we didn't. Yeah, we were kind of worried. <laughs> but there was something up. All just like in your windows, all the like back and forward between different characters and such. Some of my favorite moments were all the different dream sequences, like Tina's with Jimmy Jr. Those were fun. And then the meeting with Louise's stuffed animals and her nightlight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the one that got squished. And then she's just like, it's like, you know, damaged goods. Damaged goods that should be thankful that they are here instead of the garbage. <laughs> like the subtle threat that she said to the squished stuffed animal light. I just loved so many of the little bits and sequences of this. 
And another sequence I liked was the uh, the cop stakeout with Sergeant Bosco, who's voiced by Gary Cole. Yes. And how they're like, Gene was like, you know, you got your police light on top of your car. And he's like, ah, shoot, dang it. Gotta take that back in there before they see I'm a cop. And they're like, see the biker come out of the bar. And he's like, hey, kids, you hanging out with that cop that's been there all day? No, d- darn it. I'm not a cop. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Walks back in. Like your police badge is on the, the dashboard. And then, yeah, your coffee cup says sergeant on it. <laughs> or just the whole fact that there were a bunch of bikers that stole a ton of karaoke machines. One thing I like about the crime in this universe, between this and one of the episodes that is my recommendation for this week, the crimes are always very mundane. In this movie, it's bikers stealing karaoke machines. And one of the episodes that I have to recommend is Bob Day Afternoon, where... I think that's the first time we meet uh, Mickey. Yeah, Uh, Mickey, uh, the character who's mostly, or at least early on in the show's run, was voiced by Bill Hader. Unfortunately, he did not reprise his role. This time he's voiced by um, John Cuban. That's a little disappointing because I love Bill Hader, but I guess Hader's busy with Barry. I think he's just like going all in on that show now, which is fine because, you know, that's clearly something he's passionate in. No, but they still got, like, a lot of good people here. Like, the cast is great. I mean, of course, they brought back the main cast, like, with H. John Benjamin, who has one voice, but he milks it like Patrick Warburton. Dan Mintz, Eugene Meerman, Larry Murphy. Larry Murphy as Teddy has always been one of my favorite performances. John Roberts, Kristen Schaal, David Wayne, Zach Galifianakis, Kevin Klein, Gary Cole, David Herman, Stephanie Beatrice, Aziz Ansari, Brian Husky, Bobby Tisdale, Jenny Slate shows up a tiny bit. Laura and Sarah Silverman show up. Sam Heater, Ron Lynch, Craig Anton, Paul Rudd, Robert Ben Garrett, Andy Kindler, Nicole Byer, and Jordan Peele, along with Paul F. Tompkins and Nick Kroll, some of the carnies. That is a very impressive voice cast. It's also just interesting to see... I mean, like, there are definitely celebrities here, but it's not really about the celebrities. It's like how uh, Teen Titans go to the movie. Yes, it had Kristen Bell and Will Arnett, but you were mostly there for the voice actor. What did you think about the animation? I thought the animation was perfect for big screen that they didn't go too over the top. It looks pretty much just like TV show, but on clearly a higher budget kind of like the difference between the simpsons on tv versus the simpsons movie it's like perfect for the big screen would you have liked them to gone a little further with the like the hand-drawn sequences like you could tell that they're mostly using the same like puppet animation like throughout a lot of this and there's definitely some little moments where you can see the compositing of like 2d characters walking across this CGI background. I would have liked to see maybe a little bit more fluidity in the musical sequences, but for everything else, I thought they did a very good job. They granted they do save a lot of those more fluid sequences for the musical moments, like a uh, sunny side up summer, which what a great opening song to it and sets the tone immediately about what the stakes are. And it's nice that the film is so small scale. Like, there's nothing like uh, what happens in the Simpsons movie here. It's the Belchers need to find a way to make enough money to pay off the loan. 
or at least by the end of the movie, the loan for that month. I like that because to them, that is like end of the world for them. Mm-hmm. I also love every time they go to uh, the bank office for, for a loan, the, the guy just like, no. What about a burger? I'm trying not to eat less meat. Going to just keep typing until you walk away. <laughs> yeah. Question. We've said that a lot of people can probably watch this movie with either watching very little of the show and not miss a beat. Would you show this movie to someone who has never seen the show? Honestly, yes. Because there are one of two possible outcomes. If they like what they see, it will inspire them to want to watch the rest of the show. But if they don't like what they see, then eh, no skin off my back. I was kind of contemplating this because like, my sister and I have watched the show before so we would like this movie now would i show it to like my parents probably it's just interesting to kind of think about because there are some of those franchise films where it's like oh you cannot watch this without homework but like the guys the director and co-creator said they didn't want you to do homework and that's so smart that they went with that decision i promise this will be my last comparison to the simpsons movie but the only difference between these two is the simpsons at the time was a much bigger pop culture staple so it it had a bit ubiquity in terms of like audience awareness whereas bob's burgers is a little bit more niche despite being on fox for well over 12 plus years i mean like it's hard to say it's niche when it's one of the most popular adult comedies out there i guess i'm speaking a little bit more anecdotally since since i'm like one of the select few people who are not tuning in every sunday fair fair it definitely feels like it's one of those films that you can sit down, enjoy, and watch, and love it. Now, what did you think about the third act? Because as we find out that the whole sinkhole situation ended up with a dead body being found of a dead carny, and it turns out that Fish Elder's cousin, Grover, who's voiced by David Wayne, was the one behind it, and he's going to kill off his family members to get the insurance and heritage money and then of course like bob and his family save the day and all that stuff i think it loses a little steam at the end like maybe it's a tiny bit too long at 102 minutes like i guess i still would have loved this it was still like 90 minutes i do think the third act is still handled well enough it's just i don't know I kind of was ready for the film to end a little bit by the I think it trips over its feet just a touch. Once we get to that reveal, things start to slow down a little bit. But the actual climax of the film, I still had a lot of fun with. Oh, agreed. I'm not saying it's like a bad ending. It's, It's probably one of the most consistently great comedy films that I've seen. Though it is interesting to see... Jimmy Pesto show up a ton with no dialogue lines. That's interesting. Which, granted, they probably had to change a lot of that, which why this film kind of took forever to come out because of Jimmy Pesto's actor. Uh, you can look up what he did. <laughs> I think I was really interested with this movie going into it because of that. 
reason was is the character going to show up like was this in production too early for changes to get made i think they kept them dialogueless for a very good reason i also wish they were able to balance out a little more time for eugene and some of the other family members to have some kind of story relevance it's not that i don't like the bob and linda and the louise stuff it's obviously about them there's just not much time given to Eugene and Tina. Not that it like hurts the movie. Not that it like the Bob and Linda trying to save their restaurant or Louise's arc of overcoming her fears is not interesting. I just love the Belcher family so much that I wish there was a little more closure or time given to the other characters. Will this stay in my top 10 animated films of the year? I will make a safe bet and say it'll stay at the very least in the top 20. But is this one of the most fun films I've seen in a theater? Yes, absolutely. Like if you're looking for like a fun little comedy to watch and if you've already seen everything everywhere all at once, definitely go watch this movie. Like even if you haven't seen the show, it's a lot more approachable than you would think it is. If you're already a fan of the show, then I guarantee you by the time this episode is released, you'll have seen the movie a couple of times. But if you're new to the show and you just want to watch a highly entertaining, kind of, sort of musical featuring probably one of the most realistic, dysfunctional families depicted on television, then yeah, you absolutely should check this movie out. Agreed. Now, what are your recommendations, Mike? So my recommendations, I'm going to keep this focused on Bob's Burgers because a friend of mine kind of threw a couple episode titles at me to check out before the movie. So a couple of my favorites from this list are Crawl Space, which is like the second episode in the first season. Oh yeah, that one's great. And the reason I love that is because they make a bunch of references to The Shining. Bob Day Afternoon, which is Mickey's introduction. And Mother Daughter Laser Razor, which is a very bizarre episode that focuses on the relationship between Linda and Louise, which involves laser tag and this very odd um, Mother Daughter 8-Hour seminar. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, too. But yeah, overall, if you're trying to get caught up on the show, it's streaming on Hulu. And these episodes that I watched were just so delightful. I'm looking forward to continuing to dive into the rest of the series. I mean, you got 12 seasons. You'll have plenty to talk about and to check out. Indeed. So what's uh, your recommendation? I had to kind of think about, like, do I want to make this thematic? Like, do I just recommend people go see Children of the Sea? We started with an offbeat comedy, and we ended on an offbeat comedy. I'm going to recommend an offbeat comedy. Who would have thought? (laughs) I'm going to recommend a film that we saw in 2020 called Ongaku Arsam. This is a one that took, like, seven years to get animated. It had, like, a very small skeleton crew-sized a team of people and mostly first-time animators working on it and they use like a lot of rotoscope it's about a, a trio of japanese school delinquents who one day want to make a band and it is so funny in how just offbeat it is and it reminds me a lot of bob's burgers 
in that regard, which is how the characters talk to one another and the dialogue and the actions taken by individuals in the film and such. It's a super charming movie. I, I mean, you can rent it anywhere or buy it digitally or own it physically. But unfortunately, it's nowhere where you can just watch it for free to stream and such. But it's definitely worth the rental or the purchase. Absolutely. Next week, we will finally dive into the Netflix anthology series, Love, Death, and Robots. This has been on my list pretty much forever, but more on that later. Until then, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Cam's Eye View. And you can, I run my own website called camsiview.biz where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash camsiview. If you like my work and want to support me in some way, shape, or form, that's one way you can do it. And you guys can find me on Twitter at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can find me in all the various Facebook groups just at my name. You can check out Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. We also have a YouTube channel now. You can also find us on Podchaser and the Banana Meter. Listen to all of our podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Pandora, too. Any, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And last but not least, everything can be found at RenegadePopCulture.com. Need to escape? So do we. That'll do it for Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.